morning, everybody. It's great to see so many people joining this morning. Um, my name is Emma Bartlett. I'm a partner here at CM Murray, specialising in employment and partnership law. And I've always had a particular interest in diversity and inclusion issues. So really excited to be having this discussion today. Today's session will be recorded and available afterwards on our website as well. As you know, we're going to be discussing driving positive action in professional services firms. I'm delighted to be joined today by an excellent panel. Firstly, my brilliant colleague, Pooja Dasgupta, who's one of our senior associates here. Victoria Widows, Director of International Legal Recruitment and Development at international law firm Aiken Gump. And Victoria manages International Recruitment and Development team um, in support of in-house recruitment of graduates through to lateral senior lawyers in what can only be described as a demanding, fast-paced and changeable professional services environment. She strategically oversees uh, recruitment and development processes and is a member of the London Office's DNI Council, to, um, which will ensure alignment of the firm's DNI strategies. And Victoria is integral to the firm's talent management, training, career coaching, and progression of trainees and lawyers. So, a very busy person, and we're very grateful to have you give your time to this today. Thank you. And um, I'm also joined today by Tom Spence, who's a co founder of Donamar Advisors. Donamar Advisors provides insight to law firms in, defined character, in defining characteristics of individuals and teams to increase the firm's understanding of a potential acquisition and their insights better equip firms to maximise the impact of successful appointments and avoid making what can only be described as costly mistakes. Tom's focus is developing and executing strategic projects for law firms throughout Europe and has a clear understanding of the challenges facing law firms today. So I will be chairing today's session. If you have any questions, do feel free to pop them in the chat box as we go along, or otherwise I do intend to leave some time at the end of our discussion to open up the floor. Um, so without any further ado, I think it would be really helpful if I could go to Pooja in the first instance, if you could put our session into context for us and um, just a brief overview of what positive action is and how it works in practice in a partnership context. Absolutely, thanks Emma. Firstly, good morning everyone. Absolutely delighted to be on this panel this morning. So yeah, I think it, I mean, without hitting you with too much hard law first thing in, in the morning, I think it is relevant to kind of put the discussion in context and just give a kind of very brief overview of what positive action actually is. I'm, I'm sure most of you will be aware already, but under the Equality Act, specifically Section 158, Section 159 of the Equality Act, firms can take firstly what, what we call general positive action. So that enables firms to take proportionate measures in the workplace to either uh, firstly to overcome or minimise disadvantage, secondly to meet specific needs or thirdly to combat underrepresentation of people with particular protected characteristics. So that could be, as we all know, race, sex, age or one of the other protected characteristics. And then secondly, under Section 159 of the Equality Act, there is a specific provision that allows firms to take positive action specifically in recruitment or promotion decisions. And this is often referred to as the tiebreaker exemption. And it can be slightly tricky in practice. We'll come on to that later. But this enables you to recruit or promote an individual with a protected characteristic if certain conditions apply. So firstly, that person has to be as qualified as the other competing candidate to be recruited or promoted 
rooted that that is often the trickiest aspect of of this provision secondly you can't have a policy of treating people who share that protected characteristic more favorably in connection with recruitment or promotion than people who don't share that protected characteristic and thirdly taking the action in question has to be proportionate um, and, and it has to be with the purpose of achieving a legitimate aim to either overcome or minimise disadvantage connected with that protected characteristic or to tackle low participation in a certain activity by those who share that protected characteristic. So very briefly, those are the provisions. And I think it's always worth remember when thinking about positive action, the very fine line between positive action and positive discrimination. Um, and put simply, pos positive discrimination is unlawful. It's it's potentially where you apply an automatic preference to someone who is from a protected group without considering their suitability or their skill for a role, for example, just to further your diversity aims. And without any basis for that or, or considering proportionality, et cetera, or having any, any data to back that up, that would be unlawful. And then finally, I'll just say, so today, the, obviously the purpose of our discussion is to talk about this in a partnership context. And really it's, we're kind of talking about identifying which protected groups in, in your partnership might be underrepresented or disadvantaged um, and how to best devise uh, a bespoke strategy uh, that will address those issues in your firm. Thank you, Pooja. That's, um, that's a, a really helpful summary. I'd like to, if I may, just ask a, a polling question to um, our audiences here. So the first one is, um, to your knowledge, has your firm ever applied the tiebreaker exemption under Section 159 of the Equality Act? And then secondly, if not, would you consider applying the tiebreaker exemption if necessary and appropriate? I'll give you a few moments if, if you're able to see that on your screen to um, submit your responses. And then um, in a minute, I assume that I will... Oh, here we go. So we do have... I'm not surprised by the answers here. So in answer to the first one, has your firm ever applied the tiebreaker exemption? Um, the vast majority, 94% of us have said no, but there is 6% who said yes, which um, I'm really keen to hear about, because from my experience, it's, it's clearly something that's very difficult to apply. But in answer to the second question, the vast majority, 88% would consider applying the tiebreaker exemption. So it says to me, we are have a very interested audience in, in what we've got to say today, which is great. So obviously, in, um, in recent years, there has been a more of a push and public awareness and awareness within our sector of the firm's obligation to address inequalities and my initial thoughts are um, in the immediate past is the Black Solicitors Network in putting out its call for action to address racial inequalities in 2020 in light of George Floyd and I just wondered if I could maybe go to um, Victoria first and ask your thoughts on whether there is a need for positive action for partners in law firms in the first instance morning bit in my opinion yes if we are to be a industry in the future that's representative of society yes there is need and is, is the use of section 159 so that's the the tiebreaker exemption seen as radical and inequitable and not really something that's the employer's responsibility in your expect experience and obviously Tom please do jump in here as well in future. I think it, it's um, it's one they fear that they get wrong so applying the law seems very difficult but actually to understand that you need to make interventions of some description is actually just the, the groundwork that needs to be made so if you have top-down 
people like we have a female chairperson and a chief of diversity who ensures that our pipeline of, of future talent is diverse so therefore they set the tone and normalize it to a point where people are less fearful and therefore will take actions that allow them to do it it's just the any any lawyer has a level of caution as you know and as soon as you say there's a law around it they, they sort of overthink it but actually positive actions and positive interventions are relatively simple yeah. Tom in your experience is this something that you've discussed with any of your clients yes and no I think the, the work that we do at the at the partner level I think, and I'd be interested in Victoria's views, but I think it can be difficult to to get to the point where you've got two extremely equal individuals because you're looking at client base, business, and, and there's a whole variety of metrics within that, which I think can make it quite challenging. What we what we do here, which again goes to Pooja's point of verging on the positive discrimination side, is clients wanting to try and lean us in one direction. Um, you know we would ideally like a a female partner Um, so if we could focus in that direction or what have you which isn't it sort of essentially brings out the fact that you actually don't to Victoria's point you don't have the pipeline underneath if if you're having to go external and some firms obviously do to increase the, the percentage of females in partnership verging on the discrimination side then I think you have to look more broadly at your diversity strategy internally than, than externally. So we haven't come across a tiebreak situation because of the points around business case and clients and, and, and what have you. But we have seen verging on the dis- discrimination side, which obviously from our perspective, we we tell them we don't get involved in that. So, um, so yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because recent research has shown that overwhelmingly uh, London law firms in particular are male-dominated whereas women represent more than 60% of entrants into the legal profession and have done for the last 30 years. So I'm, I'm interested in you saying actually to go external for the female partner that they, that firstly, they're recognising that the partnership is underrepresented. So the circumstances are there to think about positive action. But secondly, why are they not looking internally? And what is it about internal DNI that isn't producing that pipeline of female partners perhaps or why are they not considering female partners from their um, existing senior pool yeah and again interested in Victoria's views on this but I think leadership is is one important facet and we can say DNI's core to the firm etc etc but if it's more verging on just words rather than real core values then that seeps into the partnership and we've you know we we know female lawyers who have had a change of leadership at their firm and and the new managing partner or senior partner is female and the change of tone is pretty dramatic um for the positive and there's a sense of more emotional intelligence and understanding and the communication style completely changes the environment for female lawyers and so I think that the the leadership point can't be underestimated um, and the emotional intelligence around leadership and how that makes uh, female lawyers uh, associates feel and also one other point that we think is potentially quite important or should be quite important is actually how 
the DNI space is resourced internally and where it fits, going to Pooja's point about having bespoke strategies, where it fits from a strategic perspective within the firm. Lots of clients and, and firms that we know have global heads of DNI and there's there's one person for a global firm. And when you're looking at the strategic structures you're looking to put in place, is that achievable with just one individual? More often than not, you could find them overstretched, and that's both from a, a DNI perspective, but also a talent and, and HR perspective. So th- those are, I think, are quite key themes that firms should be considering in terms of where you're placing this and how seriously are you taking it. I agree with that, Tom. I think the leadership communication piece is is very vital. Um, our female chairperson is phenomenal. I'm quite frankly very aspirational, inspirational person. But um, her communications through the pandemic probably kept our firm together. They were just open. They were slightly raw. Um, she'd write them late at night for the typos. Sometimes you could see how passionate she was, and but they would tell you how it was going on. And she sort of, you know, held everybody together held everybody accountable but she does the same tone in her with her messages to the partners around change we need change we need to see this so you know data is king for us we look at where our leaky pipelines are we've gone back years and see where where we lose people and then we've made our actions at those points and you I, I agree as well where your DEI efforts are placed and who does them if you don't take a sort of or across the firm approach to that, it, it just it, it will fail. You need more than one person spearheading something like this. It needs to be placed in each group at mm. each level and in recruitment and in your development policies as well. Just to add to that, Victoria, I think it's just drawing upon what you and Tom have been saying that it's obviously so important to have those role ma- role models and champions at the kind of mo- the senior most roles in, in in the firm, but it is ultimately a shared responsibility across the firm for people to be, uh, particularly those in decision-making roles, but to be challenging your own bias in on a day-to-day basis and looking at ways that you can actually make your pipeline as diverse as possible and help to build people through the pipeline up to partnership level. And that starts with, uh, you know, very early engagement and discussing with people you know what what do you actually need discussing with your associates senior associates what is it that they they think they need to be able to really kind of get to the top and I think attrition it has been pretty high I think particularly so since the start of the pandemic and I think that seems to have been kind of further exacerbated amongst diverse lawyers from what what I've been reading and I think it's worth thinking about why what the reasons are for potentially for diverse lawyers to who are failing to reach that partnership level and or leaving or are leaving the firm and thinking about whether or not that's because of a lack of quality of work or advancement opportunities and what more can be done in that respect or if they've just not been integrated within the firm as they should have should have been and actually just I think a really key point is kind of lack of feedback and I think that seems to be quite a common issue in terms of making sure that you kind of get people from the bottom up to the to the senior most levels of the partnership. I'm finding some really I've just made some notes on some really interesting points that have come through from that discussion and and one is that the message has to come from the top and that's something we've we've always known but obviously Aiken are getting it right because they're able to your chair is able to reinforce that message on a regular basis and where Tom has said that it 
it's a shared responsibility or it's better being a shared responsibility amongst leaders that's going to assist in having that frequent reinforcement and having the role models as Pooja said is, is so important so people can look up and see themselves there and think well actually I can pursue my career within this organization just I'd be interested to know what examples um, might anybody might have experienced of how to plug the leaky gap by way of positive action, where you've noticed that uh, you may have lost or you're losing senior diverse lawyers that would otherwise help with making better diversity within the partnership. I can talk to some of our uh, initiatives. Um, so we've, for a long time, I've been doing parental coaching. So as you go out or as a parent or as you return, you, you're offered coaching and mentoring with an external um, coach. That's been very successful. And to date, all of our parents have returned, which can only mean it's a good thing. But by giving them that sort of platform early um, and also opening up a network group of parents and caregivers and also role model um, champion partners that also you know take that intervention on sort of low low key coffee mentorings that's been hugely successful we're quite an open firm on um, lived experiences so we will do quite panels where people are comfortable to be relatively raw and say it's hard it's difficult here's how I cope and then you create the sort of informal networks that allow people to to realise it, it's never easy as a working parent, but it, it does allow, you know, you are in a shared environment and people have the same experiences. So that's been hugely helpful generally. And, and then we've done a couple of other sort of interventory coaching environments to allow to allow people to progress. But we've, we, what we've realised in the past few years is you need to do that earlier. It, maybe it was only pre-partnership timings that firms did it before. And now I'd say we do it all the way through. We do it at, as they qualify at mid-level, at council level, which is our senior associate equivalent, and then, as, and then towards partnership as well. And all of those are beneficial for engaging your talent, giving them a platform to speak and to share. And Tom, have you come across anything that might sort of re- resonates with this? Have you, have you had anybody talk to you about whether or not they should, for example, um, set quotas, or is it better to stick with aspirational targets for any diversity? improvements that they want to see throughout their partnership but we've seen a blend to, to be honest i think the aspirational targets is is something that we we hear more of at the moment we've got a particular view on 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 this in the sense of firms often look at the partnership level and view that as the the metric that they're going to judge themselves by and look to try and change that our view is if you're looking to just trying to change a partnership points essentially you're already behind the curve and to victoria's point you know you have to look below that you have to create a structure and an environment where you have your own pipeline and you're not looking uh, as we see fairly often firms looking externally to try and fix their problems when it comes to this if you look internally, you create the right strategies, the right approaches and the right structures, then you build a f- solid foundation for the future. And uh, our view is that firms that are just focused on the external are losing sight of actually the most important piece, which is their people. And that's the internal piece and giving them the right platform to develop and, and, and thrive within their own environment. And it, obviously it sounds like Aiken have 
have have got the the right structures in place. But without that, we're going to. I think we'll continually see firms looking to almost make headlines because they've recruited X or Y partner, but actually we would prefer to see people, firms promoting from within and building the right structures internally. Yeah, There's, there seems to be a real difference between some DNI initiatives, which will take time to have a meaningful impact, but certainly the ones that have been discussed today seem to have quite a, a quicker impact on retention of, we're talking at the moment about female lawyers that can build your pipeline for partnership. And um, I've just seen a really helpful comment from one of our audience today saying that reaching out usually to the female alumni who've taken a career break after maternity leave can really be productive in terms of bringing more women into the workplace at mid-senior level. Obviously, the taking action under Section 159 is a more faster and direct permitted form of positive action in the partnership context to be used in the tiebreaker situation where you've got two partner candidates of equal merit or senior candidates of equal merit who you like to think of as future partners. Uh, can I ask now our panel views on how employers can make that assessment safely and whether they found that employers have been reluctant or unwilling to implement positive action in their recruitment or promotion processes? happy to to kick that off but I think the main issue as far as you know my opinion with section 159 with the tiebreaker exemption is that there's such limited guidance and limited case law on the application of that provision and actually the only decision the main decision that I'm aware of is the case of Furlong and that was that went the other way uh, in which you know an individual who was challenging uh, the application of the tiebreaker exemption was actually successful in his discrimination claim and I think there are learning points from that case but I think the main takeaway point is that possibly many firms who are aware of that case will be fearful of you know individuals challenging that individuals who don't fall within the protected group that you're trying to kind of target for example and worry about you know potential litigation and think well why, why should we do that? And the other point to mention on 100, section 159 is that it shouldn't be used in a vacuum. It should be used in conjunction with kind of preparatory measures under the more general positive action provisions, uh, which, as I think you mentioned, Emma, might take slightly longer, but actually positive action shouldn't be used as a quick fix because you might end up over-promising and underachieving on, you know, if you, if you say that you're going to, if you set aspirational targets within a completely unworkable time frame, then, you know, you're going to be letting the wider workforce down. So I think you need to really think about whether or not Section 159 is appropriate for your particular firm and whether it should be used in conjunction with other measures and also allowing those other measures time to, to be effective um, and having action plans in place to make sure that you review their effectiveness on an ongoing basis because that will all kind of come to this issue of proportionality a measure that might have been proportionate one year might not be proportionate the next so I think you just need to make sure that you have a clear structure in place if you're looking to implement these types of measures. Pooja sorry very briefly you mentioned the case of Furlong are you able to just summarize the facts there just in case that people haven't heard of that case? 
Absolutely. Again, I didn't want to go too heavy into case law, but I would reckon it. I mean, there's only one judgment really out there that we all talk about when we when we talk about positive action. So it's worth reading if if you ever have. I know you're all very busy people, but if you ever have time. But essentially, Mr. Furlong was a is is a white heterosexual non-disabled man. And he had been told that he was unsuccessful in his application for a position as a police constable. So obviously we're talking about slightly different facts here. You know, it's public sector, but but still there are learning points for us anyway, even though. So he, he wasn't successful, even though he'd, compl- he'd successfully completed the assessment centres and the interview stages of the process. And he'd actually performed pretty well. Ultimately, his, he brought a discrimination claim on the grounds of sexual orientation, race and sex, and it was successful. And I think just drawing on the key learning points from that case, Cheshire Police had applied a policy of positively discriminating during their recruitment process. And it was applied and they were criticised for the fact that it was applied in a large volume, which couldn't really be considered reasonably necessary based on the evidence that they had before them. So learning point from that, obviously avoid taking, um, avoid adopting blanket policies, particularly within larger scale recruitment exercises. Secondly, they hadn't proven that they had a reasonable belief that there was a particular barrier to candidates with protected characteristics. So their their actual statistics at the time suggested that by the time they reached the interview stage, there was in fact 100% recruitment of BME candidates and 73% for LGBT candidates. So that key point there that any decisions made in relation to measures to be taken have to be driven by the data as Victoria said you know data is king and especially so in 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 these types of circumstances thirdly although the tribunal in the Furlong case accepted that there was a need for more diversity in the police the blanket approach that was adopted again drawing on this blanket policy point of positive discrimination wasn't considered proportionate another really really important reminder to continually review proportionality of all measures and then finally in that case the the Cheshire Police considered they deemed 127 candidates to be of equal merit I mean even on the face of it that sounds preposterous but the point from the learning point from that is avoid 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 introducing artificially low thresholds just to meet your diversity aims it has to be based on if you are thinking of applying the exemption it has to be based on objective criteria to actually get to the point where you think that two candidates might be of equal merit it's very very difficult in practice um, but I think you need layers of assessment um, and being able to objectively assess whether or not those candidates are of equal merit to then take that step of saying we're gonna we're gonna show preferential treatment to the person who has protected characteristic. Thank you. A very quick gallop through that, but a really useful summary. And as you say, data data is key in refreshing your understanding of, of what your partnership needs in respect of diversity, equality and inclusion. And looking at the statistics, I don't think it is an option just to do nothing in the hope that the problem will fix itself as um, societal developments trickle down. I'm really interested to talk about other law firm initiatives that have turbocharged efforts to push diversity, equality and inclusion initiatives, such as implementing policies and practices. And uh, Victoria, can I go back to you? Do you do you think there's anything else that Aiken have done that's had a real impact on the diversity of seniors and partners within the firm? Well, interestingly, 
we've as a US firm we are bound we we sign up to the Mansfield rule in the US which is a, a, a interesting um rule which requires 30% of your critical mass to be um sorry 30% of your leadership to be diverse and that's full diverse characteristics that's gender ethnicity lgbt and ability and so that means all of our leadership positions are consistently looked at all of the time to ensure that they have a representation. And then each of our resource groups, our internal affinity groups, um, they have a leadership, a leader in each of them. So that therefore our effective board, our management board is amongst what needs to go on and hears from the bottom up what needs to change. And I think having that sort of model where you are immersive and constantly aware that people who don't look like you or come from your background or um, of the same gender as you have a difference of opinion. I won't say it's been perfectly easy, but it has opened up conversations and it does allow change to continue. Um, and it continues to sort of build knowledge, understanding and appreciation that you can't sit back and wait to change won't happen without action. Sounds like a really continuous discussion that you're having about what do we need, what do we need and how are we going to do it? And you mentioned just before we came on, actually, some really great initiatives with regards to promotion, women, sorry to stick on the gender aspect of this, but women and how that's impacted retention, um, particularly with regards to pregnancy. Yeah, it's it's been a really thoughtful process. So when we were looking at our pipelines and what they look like and who is in the pipeline, you know, inevitably our councils are often in the, the stage of their life where they are having their families. And in, in years gone by you either may they may have been overlooked or they'd it would be slowed down for their path process so what we have had is open conversations about what the path looks like earlier on and also which i think is crucial asked the individuals do they want to be considered whilst on maternity leave because not everybody does not everybody wants that pressure at the same time as building their family so but that has resulted in some really positive outcomes and uh, of the last um, three females that were promoted are either just coming back off maternity leave or on maternity leave and we also had a champion partner from years before who is that person that says you can do it if you want to do it the firm is that platform and it you know it's it's beneficial in many ways you keep your talent they become great role models it allows your councils and your associates to think well if I want to it's possible and yeah I, I think that's a really a really positive action that's occurred and has great results. It sounds a really refreshing approach and to have that 30% aspirational uh, having signed up to the Mansfield rules is um, it shows great leadership. Um, Tom, you obviously work across Europe with law firms. Have you seen a difference in DNI approach in different jurisdictions? Yes, I think the approach or culture, I think culture is, is, is probably the better uh, term. I think it's very difficult for international firms um, to uh, have a blanket approach. I think uh, someone's mentioned before, you can't, you can't have a blanket approach. You need to look at each geography or office, et cetera, in, in its own light. And we've had, uh, we did a consultancy project in, in Germany uh, two years ago, who've got a very different social and cultural structure to, to, to us here. And, and, the, the firm that we were working for, there was a lot of uh, pressure from management for the German partnership to increase, particularly women in, in partnership and increase diversity. 
and and actually the german culture is very different to to ours they have a term called ravensmutter which is essentially raven's mother and ravens abandon their young which essentially is the term for women who return to work after having children so very different social structures we weren't expecting it to be honest because we hadn't done a, a consultancy project like that in in germany before so there's a, a education and, and to victoria's point communication is, is so crucial not just within leadership but the firm internally to understand different offices and different cultures and again one of the senior dni individuals that we know who's head of dni at a global firm they have structures in place for everywhere apart from asia for the time being because of of the cultural aspects that they you know with internally have within within asia so i think it's very it's very difficult but the way we get there as institutions is by com- continual communication and evolution and if you actually look at the makeup of firms today we're we're ahead of where we were five ten years ago so that's positive development mm-hmm. um but it doesn't stop there and there's there's challenges that firms need to continually understand that they're going to face whether it's in london in germany italy asia wherever it might be and the only way we we get under the skin of it is to to listen and communicate effectively um, aking gummies gump is obviously also an international law firm have have you found Victoria, any difficulties in adapting what seems to be a us led um diversity equality and inclusion approach in other international offices so i'll give aking gum they do they they don't enforce the one size fits all at all so even though they have their their mansfield framework it's not enforced in london obviously we're regulated under the sra and we have our own um uk employment laws to to manage so when it comes to our uae offices and asia we actually let them lead us so we asked them so we gave we gave them the option to take up the, any of the frameworks that were already in existence and then what did they want to see and um, by having the lawyers lead out themselves, it's been formed in what's useful for them. Um, the UAE is a particular tricky area in the sort of cultural differences that you really can't be too heavy handed with. But by allowing the voices to come from within, it has allowed it to shape in a way that makes sense. And then the pipeline model works across all offices anyway. So whatever your population looks like would be taken into account regardless. So. Uh, where it probably would be more difficult, as Tom mentions, is when you're trying to laterally hire in a specific way and enforce something, that would be a lot harder to apply, but we haven't taken that route to date. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's really interesting. So again, it's, uh, it's understanding the culture of the jurisdiction that you're operating in and asking for uh, consulting with the partners working there to understand what they need and how you can bring about the improvements is what I'm hearing at the moment. We asked at the outset about whether anybody had applied the tiebreak situation in practice. Is that something that either of you have had to look at from a positive action perspective? Not at lateral level, no. In the student market, yes, because of the multi-level of candidates and making sure it's proportionate to the to what the firm needs. 
Um, we've had to make some actual interventions on the student hiring because we blind CV screen and that has actually skewed the candidate pool. So if you don't make an intervention at that point, you can end up with the wrong demographic solely represented. So that's where I've seen it actioned. That's, that's really interesting to apply that second level and not just trust the blind recruitment as having get it right. Um, exactly. It's, it's it, the very good intention of blind screening actually <laughs> was counteractive in the end. So yeah, it had to be, we had to recognise it wasn't working in the way it was intended to work and then make a, a manual proportional intervention to make sure that the candidate pool stayed representative of the actual number, type of applicants we were receiving. Yeah. So with, um, with an increased focus and uh, momentum to drive long-term change um, with regards to diversity, equality and inclusion at partnership, has anybody got any examples of voluntary measures that professional services can take with regards to partnership? So I think we've talked quite a bit about promotion, retention and looking internally, which I think is absolutely critical uh, to work on your internal pipeline first. But if that's not appropriate or if it's not enough, then thinking about what you can do in terms of your, in terms of your external recruitment processes is also you know, really worthwhile exercise to continually review. And I've seen, you know, many firms working, read about many firms working with specialist recruiters, um, specialist recruitment companies such as Rare Recruitment, who, you know, they have services, they have a system, uh, I think it's called Hemisphere, where they, they help interviewers and managers to kind of question their own bias and work through that and I think that that's been apparently been really successful with some of the magic circle firms that they've worked with and just just ensuring that there that you implement kind of fair transparent policies around recruitment that are based on objective criteria and I think that can be quite difficult if you are thinking of recruiting laterally because quite often as we all know lateral partner hires will happen via word of mouth and it'll be who you know and there is the risk of potentially hiring in your own image without even realizing that there is any bias behind that so thinking about how you can weave into your constitution and your policies a way of ensuring a degree of independence in that recruitment process when you've you know when you've when you're looking externally to recruit well, I was really interested in something that you said earlier about a law firm who's looking for a particular partner candidate who has a particular protected characteristic and how that person uh, obviously you quite rightly said well we can't go out and just recruit somebody on the basis of their protected characteristic that's not actually what I think you want to ask us to do but from your experience how do you how important is it for the individual candidate who may be being recruited as a natural partner how important is it for them to feel in the process that they understand they're not being recruited because of their protected characteristic do you have any thoughts on that yes I think and the way we work unfortunately for law firms is we demand more of them and you know our belief is that is the way it should be um and so to, to, to Pooja's point actually in terms of hiring in your own image a lot of the lateral partner processes obviously these things can take a long time but a lot of the time the entry point is quite a, a casual conversation and I think that as an entry point is always the an easy 
easy part to start hiring your in your own image because you can go for a coffee or whatever you, you you know beer or whatnot with someone and you connect with them on a almost personal level and have that personal buy-in because they are similar to you and i think that is a it's a very it's a valuable part of the recruiting process to attract someone in but also quite dangerous from a perspective of hiring someone that is very similar to you and then ultimately build a team in your own image. I think in terms of what we advise and demand of, of our clients is a deeper thought process around the strategy behind a hire and whether that's the types of clients that, that they want to attract, the types of clients that they're working with, doing deeper analysis to actually understand who are the individuals that can help move the business. I think the the recruitment side of, of partnership or partner recruitment can be varied from go on legal 500 and here's a long list of uh, people which is not helpful uh, you know f- from our perspective if we are looking at a diverse group of people which is what we should be doing we need to have a clear articulated message around why that individual is valuable to us and that isn't something basic it is deep client analysis, market feedback, you know, strategic fit with the business to ensure the individual has a feeling that they are valued, not just simply because of the way they look, but actually them as a professional. And so we demand that of our our clients and it's obviously work that we do. It takes more time ultimately to, to, to really diligence the background of are sort of short list or target list essentially but it's it's hugely important to hit the right notes and then also from our perspective the first conversation then is not this casual uh, you know let's see if we can connect on a personal level you can do that but actually the first conversation is deeper because it's about the strategic need of the individual which is it is a shift of of thought process for the interviewing partners away from let's get to know each other and be be nice with each other yeah and so your lens is at the senior end is very much to be more strategic about it and understand we're we're talking about partner level you would expect everybody to be technically expert in their area in their field and to have some understanding of business development and it can be lazy for a firm to just recruit in its own image at the partner level and the reason I guess why they might want to do that is because you know that if somebody looks like you has been to the same schools or has had the same experiences then they're going to fit well within the firm and you don't have to work at the firm's culture and actually there's so there's two things here you have to have this strategic approach to the recruitment and understand particularly what it is you're looking for and and then secondly you have to have and have worked and continue to work hard on the firm's culture to ensure that when that person lands firstly they know they haven't been recruited just because they went to a particular school or because they're a particular gender or member of a a relevant ethnic community but it's because they're the best person and then if you've worked hard on your culture and continue to do so then you would hope that they will feel very quickly that they can be part of the firm going forwards yeah our focus is to and it should be fairly straightforward but it does take a little bit of education sometimes is to shift the commonality 
away from football, rugby, the school you went to, you know, all that kind of easy to sort of talk about stuff. The commonality and the, the focus of conversation is around strategy, strategic buy-in, client vision, etc. Because that, whether you're, whatever background you're from, if you're talking the same language from a commercial perspective, then for us, that's the best foot to take forward. And to do that from the get-go, you have to put in more groundwork and more diligence up front before making approaches or, or trying to, to bring people in to enable that conversation to spark from the first meeting. I want to ask if anybody has any burning questions, but I do have two more questions that I want to put to the panel, but I'm conscious that there's we're running up close to half past ten. Can I ask if anybody has any questions that they want to put to the panel? And if not, I'm going to uh, controversially perhaps touch on whether improvements within diversity, equality and inclusion can be brought about through remuneration and objective planning for partners in particular. Does anybody have any experience of objective setting or and indeed how that might hit partners in the pocket if they're not cooperating with positive action strategies of the firm? Talk to the strategic planning piece. We have not yet had the remuneration piece added to it, but we have a strategic DEI partner with each of our practice areas who has to write and maintain the plan for that for each group, which includes how many trainees they attract to NQ through to lateral hiring through to promotional stuff. And that has the accountability piece, allows it to, to keep the dialogue open so it doesn't just become a firm strategic plan it's a department group practice area plan as well and the groups that do it really well do it really well and it, it's it's tangible that's fantastic and how many dni partners roughly would that be then who are so in each of our major practice areas there's a dni a dei allocated partner with a strategic lead and then we have a dei and the, set, um, the DEI partner in London is also heads up our women's initiative. So it all interlinks. It's not separate strands um, to make it sort of fully accountable. And everybody goes through implicit bias training, which to Tom's point in the hiring process and allows at least a conversation to be had about avoiding hiring in your own image and why. And it allows me to have my disrupt conversations when they don't enjoy when it's going down a strand. Uh, but we do hire in a synergy way. So, every, so hiring plans, regardless of, what the strategic plan looks like has to work for the synergy of the business. It, it has to be right for the business flow so that you know candidates have to meet that criteria. How, very quickly on this point, but how is whoever is the DE and I partner for each practice group, how was that person chosen? Or did they step forward and say, I have a particular interest in this, I'd like to do it? I think the latter. It was, it was a call by the chairperson for who would like to do it in each group. And I think people put themselves forward. And it, you know, as I say, some some groups are more successful than others, but it but it is generating an energy. So. Yeah, but if you have an interest in it, you're going to achieve more. One would hope. Thank you again. There, there's a, another brilliant comment in the chat box here from Julie Morrison saying she has experience with this from an accountancy firm perspective regarding the scorecard setting. So, thank you. That's fantastic. I'm going. I'm going to put my last question to the panel now. And um, final thoughts, really, looking for maybe one word or five word answers on what would you advise a firm to prioritise for improved diversity or gender diversity or diversity generally within a partnership context? Talk about it. I would say make 
data-driven, proportionate decisions that are relevant to your own diversity aims. Thank you. Communication and education. Brilliant. Thank you all very much. I would like to thank our panel for really thoughtful answers and practical answers as well to the questions that we've been discussing today. Thank you all for listening. And if you have any questions subsequently, please do not hesitate to contact myself, Pooja. And I'm sure if you've got questions for Victoria and Tom, we can uh, liaise with them or to find some answers, suitable answers for you. But thank you very much.